So we're in part three of this series, and here's what we've talked about for three weeks in The Real You, is that all of us have the temptation and the propensity to look around us, um, specifically at things, what we possess, what we achieve, in order to find our value. And so the question that Justin has kind of unpacked and that we've been looking at for three weeks is just this, where does your value come from? Like, where does your value come from? In week one, we looked at what he called the performance trap where it's so easy to look at the things that we do, the things that we achieve, whether it's maybe as a parent, um, maybe it's in education, maybe it's in some industry, um, whatever it might be, that's the benchmark. When I'm hitting that, then I feel like I have value. It does something internally in me. And so that performance trap is really dangerous, though, because your value is, is really insecure. It's really um, pretty... So easily can just dissipate, so easily can just erode because it all depends on like you hitting whatever that mark is that you have put out in front of you that says, if I do this, I'm going to be okay. And then last week we looked at the possession obsession, that it's so easy to look at what we accumulate, what we buy, what we purchase, what we drive, what we wear. And it sounds weird, like it sounds almost middle school, and this is one we don't want to admit, but there isn't this weird toxic intoxication with just like getting something new? Like you, you drive something new and you just think like you're better as a result. I mean, it's just this weird thing where we can look to inanimate objects. We can look to stuff and at some level like feel like that that gives us some kind of value. As we end the series, I want to look at the final one, this, this final third thing that is a temptation for all of us, and I think I can say all of us pretty confidently, that we are moved to find our value in relationships, like people around us, groups around us. And it may not be like one person, like it may be a fraternity or sorority. It might be this group that you're a part of. It might be getting this person's recognition um, or approval or who you know or what socioeconomic group that you're a part of. Or um, this is going to sound weird to some of you, but even sports, like if you're not a diehard sports fan, you're not going to understand this, but like guys that get there, and maybe women do this too, but like their identity or value value based on how well their team does. They'll make statements like, hey, we need to sign whoever this offseason, and we need to fire whatever, and I think we are going to have a, an amazing year. And like, we've never played for the team ever, but like, there's just this thing that happens. Like, when we don't do well, it does something to us. When our team does do well, it's almost like we feel like we have more value. It's just this like weird thing. I mean, it may be where you're from. It may be, um, you know, some other group that you're a part of. The biggest one for a lot of us, it's your husband, it's your wife, it's your kids. But all of us have this temptation and have this propensity to begin to look around us at different relationships and, and some, at some level, try to squeeze our value out of that. Now, here's the thing. You were created for relationships. Like one of my favorite parts of Genesis, and I know for some of you it's really difficult to believe that Genesis is real. I believe it because Jesus died and rose again and referred to Genesis. And so always go with the guy who came back to life. Just believe whatever they say. So that's my simple apologetic, but he referenced Genesis. And so in Genesis, it talks about the fact that God created Adam and says to Adam in the garden, hey, it is not good for you to be alone. And Adam's like, well, I'm not alone. Like, like, you're here. 
Like, I'm literally physically walking around with God in this environment. Like, what are you talking about? But the, the whole point was, you have been uniquely designed for relationships. And so all of us, for all of us, that's true. But you cannot find your value in them. In fact, two things generally are going to happen when you start to move down that road. And again, all of us are tempted. But two things generally are going to happen. Number one, there is going to be somebody around you. And again, a lot of times this is like a spouse or it's a kid or it's whatever. But eventually, if you try to find your value in relationships, you are going to crush somebody else under the weight of being your surrogate savior. Because nobody was designed to do that for you or for me. Nobody was designed to be able to give me worth or give me value. My wife is legit. She cannot do that for me. My kids, my kids are crazy. So there's not even an expectation that at this point in my life, my kids are going to do that for me. But it just doesn't work. Like, you will crush somebody under the weight of being your little God, of being your source of, of security and love and, and whatever else you're looking for. And then number two, here's what generally happens is that as you begin to find your value in relationships, you, you move to this kind of insidious place where then you'll start to look at those very relationships and compare yourself. Even among people that you love, even among people you respect, but you start to look around to go, okay, am I healthy enough? Am I skinny enough? Am I hip enough? Am I, I whatever enough? And then here's the other thing about it. And this is, again, this is the insidious part is, Generally, if we try to find value in relationships, we're always looking for somebody who's up ahead of us a lot of times, or we're you know, looking at our spouse and, and just kind of judging how we're doing based off of them. But there's also always somebody who is behind you. So there's somebody who's ahead of you. Well, if I could just get their recognition, if I could just get their approval, if you would just say one thing, if you would just recognize, if, if we could just get into that group or that tribe... There's always those people that have what you think you need to find your value, but then there's always those who are behind you. And so then you start to look at them and, and they're dumber and they're fatter and they're whatever. And then you start to feel superior and this insidious thing happens where you're just kind of in this trap where literally you start to sabotage and undermine relationships with people that you genuinely care about. Because relationships were never designed to give you value. They were never designed to be your source of, I'm okay. So here's the question I want to end with in this series. We've kind of looked at the what. We've looked at the possession. We've looked at achievement. I want to answer this question today as we land the plane and at some level probably kind of wrap up this whole three-week series. I want to deal with the who question. Who am I and who are you? Who am I going to use as my reference point to tell me that I'm okay? Who am I going to use? Who are you going to use as your reference point to tell you that you're okay? And, and the thing is, this is in us. Like, all of us have this desire that we want to be loved. Like, we want somebody's approval. We want to know that we're worthy. We want to have some kind of security in our life. We want to be accepted. It's in every single one of us. But the question is, who are you going to use as your reference point for your value? Who are you going to use as your reference point to tell you that you're okay? Who is it? It's a boss for some of you. It's an in-law. I could just get my mother-in-law to say something nice. Not my mother-in-law. She's podcasting. I love you. Um, <laughs> she podcasts every week now, so I got to um, be careful. 
It's your, I, I do love my mother-in-law. Um, it, it, again, it's, it's a husband, it's a wife. For some of you, it's, it's your adult kids. It's, it's a part of that industry. It's the guy that leads that industry. But like, who, who are you using as your reference point? And while you're thinking about this, here's the thing that you need to know for all of us, just in terms of life, is that if you go long enough in life, eventually you're going to have this whisper that shows up. And again, it's universal. doesn't matter what you believe about God. doesn't matter if you've signed on to the Jesus thing, if you're investigating. I'm so glad you're here. But this is just everybody. Like, this is all skate. That a whisper starts to develop for all of us. And I don't, it's not audible. I don't think it's necessarily Satan. I'll talk about that. I just think it's, it's the brokenness of humanity. But there is a whisper that develops for all of us that constantly, and whispers can almost shout sometimes, but a whisper that says, am I enough? Am I okay? Am I all right? Am I enough? Am I okay? And that whisper constantly moves with you through different seasons of your life, through different relationships of your life. And so here's the amazing news about the scripture. And this is where sometimes we stop way short of what God is actually inviting us into, is that the good news of the gospel, and gospel just means good news, is that there is an answer to that whisper. There is an answer for that whisper. And it's better than that. It's bigger than that. There's a solution for that whisper. And I don't care where you are. Some of you, again, you, you kind of got this thing relayed to you where following Jesus and Christianity is simply transactional. It's like, well, if I just believe, then I get forgiveness of sin and some ethereal idea of heaven. And I just want to tell you, it is way bigger than that. It is way better than that. And Christianity offers a solution for the whisper that I know at some point along the way you've heard and offers a solution for that whisper. Am I enough? Am I okay? Am I all right? Is, is everything good with me? Paul, a guy who um, at some level was like he was looked to in his generation and wrote like uh, almost three-fourths of the New Testament, had brilliant insight on what Jesus did. Like Jesus came and he died on the cross for all of our sin. He walked out of a grave alive. That's what we believe, that he offers a relationship simply by faith, not faith in faith, but faith in the event of a resurrection in history that validated everything Jesus said about himself. And so when we place our trust not in us or our way, our ability to earn our way to God, but place our faith and trust in what Jesus has done, that we're entered into a relationship and Paul comes along to say, okay, let me give you insight on all that that means. And he specifically answers the question of where that whisper comes from and who you should look to, to tell you that you're all right, to tell you that you're okay. And here's what Paul says. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to see this. If you've got it pulled up on your phone, or if you go to our Centerpoint app and you can go to sermon resources, all of it's going to be right there. But here's what Paul writes to a Greek-Roman province known as Galatia in the first century. He says this in verse 4. But when the time had fully come, meaning when God was ready and everything was just right, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if anybody told you this. I don't know if you believe this or not, but every single individual on planet earth was born under the law. You were born accountable to the law. That's Old Testament law. That's like the law of Moses. But even more than that, the scripture talks about, it's just a law that's like written on your hearts. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. There are just some natural ought and ought nots that are wired inside of you. Like I ought not to do that. 
I ought to do that. I should do that. I shouldn't do that. And you may not call that sin. You may have your own word for it. It may be some kind of evolutionary gene, and that's how you think it got here, or maybe you were born in the West. All of us have explanations for it, but the scripture talks about the fact that you were born in sin. Super unpopular. And, and you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You just, I was born, you were born on the planet Earth, and there was something that was just off in us. There was something that we knew wasn't right because we were born accountable to the law. There was some ought and ought nots. There was some should and shouldn'ts. Now, here's the thing. If you don't believe that, let me just give you one example that kind of relates to what we're talking about. Have you ever been on the phone with somebody that you genuinely care about, that you genuinely respect, and they tell you bad news, and for whatever reason, you hear the bad news, and you're like, oh, and then inside there's like a, finally, No, I love how church people act like they have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> you ever been on the phone with somebody and it's like, okay, it went down and we're kind of having a bump in our marriage and there is this, we didn't even ask for it. It wasn't even a conscious thing. It like rose to the surface, but internally way back in there, like, okay, finally, like your car is perfect, your lawn is perfect, your kids seem perfect. I kind of feel like you were owed a little bump in the road at some point along the way. And I love you, right? It's your sister-in-law, it's your sister. Like this thing rises up that you didn't even ask for that's like you're celebrating somebody else's failure. And I'm just going to tell you, you've done it as much as you want to lie to me. Every single one of you, I'll make eye contact in this room online, I'm talking to you too, you've done it. Like it is evidence that something's not right because there is enough of the mirror of the law that you don't even know about, but it's just somehow in you that says, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't feel that way. I, I ought not to go down that road. There's enough of the mirror of the law inside of all of us that constantly says, I think at certain points along the way, I'm not all right. I don't think I'm okay. <laughs> I don't think I always measure up. I'm better than them, but I just still I just feel like something is not right. And we don't really know how we know, but we just know. And then do you know what we are most tempted and prone to do when we feel that and when we hear that whisper? We look around. We look around at other people to try to make us feel like we're okay and we are all right. And here's the crazy thing about it. We start looking around at people who are suffering from the exact same thing. Like you look around at somebody like, well, if I could just get some more of what they got, or if our, our family could just be more like this, or if I could get a part of that group, or if I could ever just get him to say anything to me, if I could ever get his approval. And, and then all these people who have what you think you lack, every once in a while, the veil's torn away, torn away. Maybe it's somebody, you know, out in culture somewhere and they just look amazing. And then something goes down where you realize they, they weren't having nearly as much fun as you thought. It wasn't nearly as great as you thought. You find somebody who has achieved so much, maybe so much more than you've achieved. And then somehow there's this honest moment and you realize with all that they've achieved, they're still wondering. They're still looking around. They're still asking themselves the question. Maybe it's why they're so driven. Am I okay? Am I enough? I thought that reaching this plateau was going to make me enough, but I still don't feel like I'm enough. And we start looking around at other people and looking at what we think we need, 
And yet we find that those people are looking around too. It doesn't matter what their marriage looks like. It doesn't matter how legit their kids are or the fact that they got accepted. And it doesn't matter, you know, how much a part of that group that you want to be a part of that they are and they're respected. It it still doesn't make up for it. And they're still at some, you know, maybe different place in life, but they're still wondering, am I okay? Am I all right? Am I enough? And we start looking around at other broken people who are suffering from the exact same thing. And then the other thing that happens is every once in a while, for some of you, or maybe not once in a while, but there was a point in your life where somebody actually told you that you weren't enough. You weren't smart enough. You weren't successful enough. You weren't whatever enough. And what it did in that moment was it confirmed the suspicion of your soul. And so Paul says, so when the time was just right, when God had everything just the way he wanted it, he sent his son Jesus on to planet earth to redeem every single individual suffering from this, to redeem every individual who is under and accountable to the law, and they know something isn't right. They know something's off. And here's what redeem means in this verse, is it simply means God gave something to get something back. Jesus did something so that he could reattach what was broken, so that he could reconnect what had been disconnected, so he could bring back together what had been separated. And so Paul's writing this and he goes, God came because of this issue to redeem everybody who's under the law, who's been detached from something, he's putting it back together. But then I think Paul stops to go, okay, but that's really transactional language. That's really like judge to defendant. It's so much, so much bigger than that. It's so much more powerful than that. And so Paul's like, that really was just the setup for this. And and let me explain it this way. And so Paul says, end of verse five, he came to redeem those under the law that we, all of us, those who place their faith in what Jesus has done, would receive the adoption of sonship. Paul's like, "This, this is so much bigger. And he's writing to a Greek and Roman province. Here's what's interesting in the first century. In Hebrew, or among the Hebrews, there was no adoption. They didn't adopt babies. They didn't even have a word for it. So Paul reaches into the Greco-Roman culture and their idea of adoption. But here's what's interesting. In the Greco-Roman culture, they never adopted babies. You think adoption, you think babies. They never adopted a baby. Babies, in many cases, wouldn't even survive. In fact, they had this saying that, hey, we'll, we'll wait and see how they turn out. Because generally, it was wealthy or powerful people who would adopt somebody. So you could literally get a certificate as like a grown person, and it would say, you've been adopted. Like, we waited to see how you're going to turn out. We feel like you're worthy. And so now we're adopting you to be an heir or a part of our family. But it never happened among babies. It always happened among adults. This was their context for adoptions. And so Paul's like, okay, how can I explain this? The best way that I can articulate it is that when you place your faith and trust in Christ, you are adopted as a son. You are adopted as a daughter, meaning literally Jesus who knew how you turned out. Jesus, who knew all of your dysfunction, knows all of your dysfunction. 
Jesus who knew how far down that road you would go. Jesus who looks at you with all of your junk, all of your dysfunction. Jesus who understands all of it as an adult, looks at you and says, by faith, I want to adopt you as a son and a daughter of God. I want to reconnect what has been disconnected. I want to bring back together what is separated. And I am inviting you literally into my family as my daughter, as my son. I'm adopting you and I know you. And Paul, as he's writing this, he's going like, that's the essence. Like Jesus at just the right time came and he came to redeem everybody who is under the law. And when you place your faith and trust in him, come on, it's not categorical. It's not just forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness is enough, but It's not just heaven when you die. And as long as that's all that Christianity is, you will miss it. As long as that's all that Christianity is, you will still have the echoes of that whisper and constantly be prone to look to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you. And Paul says, it is bigger than that. It is personal. It is intimate. It is so relational that God, yes, transactionally judged to defend it. He's canceled the debt. He's forgiven you. There is heaven when you die, but you just need to know you are a son. You are a daughter, the God of the universe. And then he says, because of that, because this creation creator relationship has been restored, Because you are sons or you're children of God, God sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And what's really interesting is in the Greek, there was no word for this. This term was first used in the Garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus was going to be crucified and put on trial and ultimately lose his life. And in that moment, he uses this Aramaic term talking to his heavenly father where he says, Abba, first time it's ever used. And as Paul's writing this, he's like, well, there's no Greek term for that. So the Greek equivalent is father. So they just translated father into the English New Testament. But Paul's like, but that's not it. It's way bigger than that. It's much more intimate than that. And so because there was no word for it, they just translate the, the Aramaic term or the equivalent Abba, and they just put both in there, the Greek equivalent, which is not really what Jesus said, and then the Aramaic Abba, but really the literal translation and why Paul kept it in there is this, that you, as you place your faith and your trust in what Jesus has done, and you are born and adopted into his family, him knowing all of your stuff, that you now have a relationship that has been brought back together where you can call your heaven. Heavenly Father, Dad. Literally, it's almost uncomfortable for me to talk about the God of the universe, Daddy. The Paul's like, this is not categorical. This is not ethereal. This is not transactional. This is so intimate. This is so personal. This is so relational, that you have been invited into a relationship where you can cry out to your God in heaven, your heavenly father, but it's bigger than that. It's less formal than that. That Literally, you can talk to the God of the universe as dad, daddy. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. What would happen if that ever moved from your head to your heart in such a way that you believed it and actually lived it. 
Let me ask you this question. Who do perfect parents compare their children to? Who do perfect parents compare their children to? Like, even, even parents who have a newborn baby, and that baby is not cute. <laughs> and let's just be honest in church. Like, every, like, the myth that every baby is cute. No, they're not. Right? I, and, and sometimes they're, that baby, you're like, ah, like, I know it, it's going to get better, but he's, you know, he's two weeks old, and he looks like he's 89 years old. <laughs> And his head is four times disproportionate to the rest of his body. And so it's a little freakish right now. I know he's going to grow into all that, but it's, it's startling. Like you, everybody has seen that baby. And even imperfect parents don't look at that baby and go, man, if they just had a little bit of what that baby had, like nursery, three doors down, like if they could just be a little bit, if they could look a little bit more like that baby, if they could just have a little bit of what they have, then I'd really be excited about this. I mean, even jacked up, imperfect parents do not do that. They look at that baby with a head the size of a hot air balloon that looks freakish and they go, it is the most beautiful baby I've ever seen in my life, even imperfect parents. I mean, if they didn't, you wouldn't say there was something wrong with the kid or the baby, right? You say there's something wrong with the parent. I mean, even imperfect parents don't compare their children. Next question. Who does your heavenly father compare you to? Who does your heavenly father compare you to? My boss? My mother-in-law? Maybe, maybe to my brother who just keeps out achieving me? Maybe them, and I, like I've been after what they have, and it's just it's not working out. It's not like do they compare me to to him? Do they, they to the Pope? Like who, who does who does your perfect heavenly Father compare you to? Nobody. And I'm telling you, as long as Christianity is categorical for you, and for so many of us, that's what it's been. So many of us, it's just been a check mark. It's just been, oh, forgiveness, that's amazing. Heaven, that's amazing. And it is amazing. But it is so much bigger than that. And as long as that's all it is, you will constantly be insecure. You will constantly be offended. You will constantly be overrun. You will constantly look to your right and to your left. And so it's why Paul wrote to us to go, listen, this is different than anything else in history. You have been invited into a relationship with your heavenly father, and he looks at you as his son and his daughter. And just like an imperfect parent, he does not compare you to anybody else. That in this moment, you are loved. You are fully and unequivocally accepted. You are worth all the worth that Jesus bestowed on you. You're secure in your relationship with him. So here's the, really the question is, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to listen to? Your estimation of your value? Their estimation of your value and those words that are still echoing your, in your mind that confirm the suspicion of your soul? Or... Is it going to be the estimation or the belief of what your heavenly father says over you? And I just want to say this. Here's where we've gotten the gospel wrong, if I could just be as bold to say that, is that we constantly want to communicate the gospel. As you place your faith and trust in Christ, you are loved, no strings attached. You are worth Jesus. You are secure. You are accepted. You have everything that you need. All of his favor is on you, but dot, dot, dot. And I just want to tell you that is not the gospel. 
And so let me allow you to hear me say what is communicated throughout the scripture. You are loved by the creator of the universe who adopted you, knowing you and all that you would do and all that you are doing right now. And you are worth Jesus. And you are secure in Christ. And you do not have to do anything to earn any more of your favor, his favor. And you are going to move to the end of your life and you're going to stand before Jesus. And if you've placed your faith and trust in him, he's going to look at you and say, you've succeeded, you've earned, you've finished, you've accomplished it, you've done it, not because you have, but because I did for you. And salvation and the gospel is on the basis of my covenant promises and not your performance. And so the gospel is your love, accepted, worthy, secure, Period. Period. It's as if your heavenly father says to you, listen, you're okay because of what I say. You're okay because of what I declare. You're okay because the fractured relationship between the creation and the creator has been put back together. And here's the thing about that relationship. When it was fractured, it sent a thread of insecurity among all of humanity that we cannot escape. That's the reason for the whisper. And so your heavenly father says to you that that break is what caused that whisper. But now through Christ, I have put back together creator-creation relationship. At some level, I have made you whole. And one day I'm going to remove you from the presence of sin altogether. And so my declaration is you are okay. You are okay. You are okay. Because of what I say. My declaration and my estimation of your value. And hey, I'm not done with you. I can change you. We can work through some of that stuff. I am not done with you, but I love you. And it does not change or alter your value in any way. And regardless of what they say, regardless of what you feel as you look around, this is the estimation of your value. And it's the only estimation that counts. Your heavenly father that paid the ultimate price through sending his son says, you're enough, you're all right, you're okay. And it's on the basis of what I say. So stop looking around. I love what Solomon writes when he says in the Proverbs literature, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It's a Hebrew couplet that has to be interpreted by contrasting it is that, that if there's no peace, it's because envy is ruling your heart. That whisper has taken over. And if you can quiet that whisper, then there will ultimately be peace. But it's only going to happen when you are willing to accept your value from the only one that matters, the value that God has placed on your life. That is the only place for your soul to feel its worth. And it's not complicated. The next step for you is God begins to move this from your head to your heart is to get up every day and go, God, to the best of my ability, I'm going to screw it up. I'm not going to do it perfectly. It's going to be a journey, but as best I can do it, I just want to be in the center of your will. God, I, I just I want your will for my life, for my marriage, for my kids, for this industry, for this business. God, I just want your will for my life, and I'm going to live from acceptance. I'm not going to live for acceptance, but it's just every single day. God, I just want to be in the center of your will. God, I want to be in the center of your will. And li listen, that's where it's at. Like some of us are chasing things, and we're comparing ourselves to people that God never created us to be. 
And so Paul in his writing says, when things were just right, God came, God redeemed, God brought back together. You have been adopted as a son and daughter of God. And now it's just, I wanna live my life in the center of God's will. And listen, here's the thing. I know some of you start to freak out of like, well, I'm type A, I'm not gonna get as much done. Yes, you will. God created you that way. But this is, I'm gonna be able to rest in the center of what God has for my life. And then others of you, you're not type A, you're sitting there going, I wish I accomplished as much as them. I feel like I'm not measuring up. No, no, no. God created you just the way he created you. You don't need to do what they're doing. You are in a place right now where his will for your life is, is very specific. His wiring of your life is very personal. So it's just getting to the place to go, God, I want to live in this space where I'm, I'm just in the middle and the center of what you have for my life. And then I'm, I'm gonna rest because maximum potential, maximum fulfillment, maximum potential is found in the center of God's will for you. It has nothing to do with anybody else. So as we conclude this series, this is, this is it. If you're ever gonna be the real you, you gotta estimate your value of you based on the one who made you, the one who loves you, and the one who redeemed you. A few years ago, I started um, almost as young as I can remember for my little girl, Brooke, and now I've I've started with my boys, and I think maybe I told this one time before years ago, but um, parents do all kind of weird things that you don't want anybody else to know about, is like keep them at home. But this is one of those things that I started that um, before Brooke would go to bed, I would just kind of get in her face really close. And I would just speak over her what I saw in her life. And I don't like to give parenting advice because I am, we're still in the journey, and I'm, <laughs> we, we mess it up a lot. But the one thing I would say is I think you need to speak over your kids who they are about three times more than you speak over them what they do. And so I would just get in her face and I would say, Brooke, God made you so kind and you're so imaginative. Whatever I just see intrinsically in her. And you are you're such a, a massive helper and you have such an internal courage is so amazing and you are so loved and you are so accepted and I would just do this for a while it was night after night now it's probably once a week you have more kids and some of those things I just don't get as much of it but I, every week with all of my kids I try to do that at least once and so I just come in Brooke you love Brooke you, you are so accepted Brooke you are you are so kind and I see what Jesus is doing in your life and one night I was doing that I was just up in her face telling her this like I do often and she kind of her big eyes on me and she would just listen. She doesn't listen as much as she used to. But at that point, she just still listened when I talked. And so I just, in her face, she, she listened to me. And then as soon as I was done, she said, Daddy, say it again. Daddy, say it again. And the reason I do that is pretty simple. If she ever doubts whether she's accepted, whether she's loved, her worth. If there's ever that moment, I want her to look right at me and nowhere else. And the reason I tell you that is because I think that's the imprint of my heavenly father on me. And I think that's the imprint of your heavenly father on you. That it's just, it's just in us 
And all of us know the power of the approval of an earthly father or disapproval of an earthly father and all that that does, all the power that that has, in many cases, multi-generationally. So if that's true, can you imagine the power of the approval of a perfect heavenly father over your life? You've got to take your estimation of your value based on the one who made you, on the one who loves you, and on the one who redeemed you. And your, the way forward for your life is to simply surrender. God, I just imperfectly want to live in the center of your will for my life because you have a will for me and maximum impact and maximum success and maximum fulfillment is going to be found there. But I'm telling you, as long as I'm looking at this, I don't need your approval. And I don't need you to be okay with me. And I don't need to be all right in your eyes. I serve the creator, king, God of the universe who spoke things into existence and sent his son and did what I could never imagine and took what was broken and put it back together. And he says over my life, regardless of what you say, you are loved as my son. You are approved as my son. You have all of my favor on you. And one day you're going to stand face to face before me. And it's going to be good, not because you got it right, but because I got it right. And it's based on my promises, you as my son and my daughter, to be entered into relationship that can never be undone. No condemnation can ever come at you. No favor can ever be retracted because it's based on my covenant promise to you. And I'm never going to disown or disinherit my kids, my sons, my daughters. And your greatest potential is going to be found in that place. Just go, God, I want to be in the center of your will. And last thing, here's what you're going to find. Here's what you will find on the other side of that. Peace. Peace when you do well. Peace when you don't. Peace when you're getting it right. Peace when you've fallen short again. There's going to be peace. So listen, you were, you were created to find your value in relationship. But there's only one that can do it for you. Your relationship and the estimation of your value based on your perfect heavenly father who says, I estimate your value as worth Jesus because I gave up Jesus for your benefit. And I redeemed you and I loved you and I created you. So more than anything or anybody else, I want you to believe and trust what I say. So you guys just stand with me all over the house. heads bowed and eyes closed. I just want to encourage you if there's any way you can stay where you are out of respect for what God's doing in the hearts of other people, that would be amazing. But as we close, our our worship team is just going to lead us in a song that helps us declare what is true. And I don't know where you are in this moment. I don't know how this hits you, but what I'm really confident of is it hits all of us because the thread of insecurity that stemmed from the break in creator-creation relationship, it has affected all of us. And so whatever maybe you need to do right now to just declare in some maybe physical way, maybe you need to come forward and just in prayer, maybe 
Maybe you need to kneel where you're at. I don't know. It looks different for everybody. And, and you can't do it on your own. But the declaration of surrender right now is, God, I, I just am asking you to do what only you can do to move this truth for a lot of us from my head down to my heart in a way that it'll change everything about me and it'll change everything around me. So Lord, I, I just pray that you would do your thing physically in this room right now, but also, Lord, where your gospel is moving into places that even right now we are unaware of and it is, it is wrecking people in the best possible way because that's what your gospel that cannot be contained does. But I pray for those individuals in the room and wherever they're listening to this right now that you would just move to speak to them right now. For some of them, it's just the start of a journey. It's gonna take them some weeks. For some, it's gonna take them some months. For others of them, it's gonna be a journey that's gonna take them some years, but you've planted the seed in this moment. For others, for others, this may be the moment where we can't explain it, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're awakened to what is true in such a way that they will walk out of here and at some level they will be different and what has power over them will begin to release its power and what they are looking to will no longer be the standard and so i pray god that wherever we are whoever we are looking to you would break the chains and the bondage of being enslaved by fear and the whispers of not measuring up and not being okay. And I pray, God, that figuratively and maybe even literally, we would lift our heads up to see you. And Lord, to just intake what you say about us. And so, God, I just pray for you to free up, to do something at the level of our hearts that would begin to release us and give us peace and help us to go free. And we pray this in the incredible, redeeming name of Jesus.